Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Terminology always has a season and its moment in the sun. If I had to put money on it, I would bet for 2022, it would be this term, the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation was coined and predicted by psychologist Anthony Klotz and is at the tipping point of a nearly decade-long trend of employment dissatisfaction. Also known as the Big Quit and the Great Reshuffle, it's an ongoing economic trend in which employees have voluntarily resigned for their jobs en masse. Beginning in early 2021, primarily in the US, but of course in Australia and other countries, we've seen a similar trend. Possible causes include low wages and wage stagnation, the rise in cost of living, long-lasting job dissatisfaction, and obviously the safety concerns of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some economists have described the great resignation as akin to a general strike. To get deeper into what this all means, I'm chatting today to Eliza Knox. She is the author of Don't Quit Your Day Job, outlining six mind shifts you need to rise and thrive at work. She built and led APAC businesses for three of the world's top tech firms, Google, Twitter and Cloudflare. Named in 2020 APAC IT Women of the Year, she spent decades as a global finance and consulting exec and is now a non-executive board director a senior advisor for BSG and a regular columnist for Forbes, where she shares her wisdom and her humour to help professionals who dream of doing it all. Eliza now shares her passion and lessons learned with the next generation of business leaders, guiding companies across new frontiers while building and maintaining strong connections between teams around the world. Welcome to the Politics of Everything, Eliza. Thank you, Amber. It's terrific to be here. So can we dig into your early childhood ambitions? Did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up and did that actually happen for you? I don't think I really knew. I, um, I am a converted Australian. I got here in my 20s, but I did grow up in the US and I grew up near Stanford University. And one of the things I did to make money in high school was to go to their PhD education program and take tests. They were paying kids to take tests. And so at one point I took a battery of, I guess, intelligence tests and aptitude tests. And the outcome of this was that I should be either a forester or a clergy person, um, neither of which <laughs> seemed, seemed well suited to me. I did also spend some time there working for Philip Zimbardo, who's quite a famous psychologist because he did the Stanford prison experiment years ago about how you know, he made some people prisoners and some people guards, and people actually really adopted those roles quite quickly. He actually ended the experiment early because people were too much into the roles and, and wreaking havoc on each other. And so there I did some stuff akin to operations research and psych experiments, and I thought I might want to do that when I grew up, but I really had no idea, and I went off to college with, with no clue what I would do. So I, I basically... Went to a college where I took a lot of different things, the American style, liberal arts, and I came out and went into a bank training program. Okay. Interesting. And uh, which was good because it was kind of continuing education. 
and then ultimately, the way I describe my career, uh, having been in tech now and software, Aliza 1.0 was the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, as you mentioned, yeah. and financial services. So Visa, Charles Schwab. And then I pivoted, having met Vince Cerf, who is one of the founders of the internet, really truly, and is an evangelist at Google, and went into tech at Google, Twitter, and Cloudflare. I ran part of Google for Asia and then all of Twitter and Cloudflare. And now I've, I'm on Aliza 3.0, which is <laughs> I love um, it. boards and a little bit of mentoring and writing this book. Great. So you have had lots of obviously experience in different working environments. And I guess there's been a lot of research trying to work out what's this great resignation all about? What does it mean for employers? And of course, in employees who are the ones who are kind of doing this general strike action, if you like, we're in a post-pandemic working environment in many ways. Of course, there's going to be COVID with us for a number of years, but you know, people are returning to offices in the US and Australia. And that seems to be the rub. It seems to be the issue that people don't want to go back to the office, but it's got to be more than that. What, what do you make of this great resignation? Well, I think that the great resignation is about maybe the great reprioritization. People realizing that some other things are possible and trying to think for themselves, what do they care about most? Interestingly, McKinsey's done some work on why have people left the workforce and why are they coming back? And the number two reasons for people leaving the workforce are uncaring leaders and unsustainable work performance expectations. So they're not actually flexibility, although flexibility is important. And I know that Manpower did a study which said that 40% of people now see flexibility as really important in their job where they might not have cited it before. So I think there's a confluence of events where there has been something building up over time about how people feel about their jobs. And then the insight from the pandemic that much of work can be executed you know, without a commute, without coming into an office. So, But most people, and the reason I wrote the book, I mean, most people need to work for a living. There are some people who are highly successful entrepreneurs, some people who go out on their own and run their own business as, as you do, and some people who don't need to work at all. But most of us spend most of our time working for someone else. And so I think the issue is people thinking through what is success for me? What do I want out of career and life? And how do I get this? And that's what the book is about. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of research and look, in, in preparation for today, I couldn't stop finding, if you like, research about this this trend and the underlying psychology and the factors which people through interviews have kind of shared about from an employer and employee point of view, what they expect, I guess, of their workplace to provide. Workers, are they quitting work entirely to change careers because they're reevaluating their priorities? Or I'm wondering if they're quitting to pursue, you know, a version of it. So, for example, I'll give you what I'm what I'm get, trying to get to is I saw a study which was mentioned in an article in the Guardian newspaper saying, is it possible that say Joe leaves his job and that's replaced by Susan who left a job that is very similar to what Joe was doing before. So really are they just swapping, you know, is there a bit of naivety? They're kind of swapping jobs because it's, you know, they work in financial services. They don't like that firm. That firm says, oh, well, I'll I'll make sure that, you know, four days a month you don't have to come into the office. Um, I'll give you all these perks. But at, at the end of the day, they're doing similar work, probably for similar pay, maybe a little bit more. 
but really long term there may not be a massive shift in in people quitting and you know these firms that sort of saying there's a war for talent they can't find people who want to come and work for them or good quality people is that sort of just a short-term thing like what's your sort of long-term view of this well, so I think you're right about some of it being short-termism. Yesterday, I was with somebody who runs a large, uh, the Australian part of a large global law firm, and they were mentioning that they're looking at a lot of lateral hire lawyers coming across who are basically leaving similar jobs to come to them. And they're happy to have these lawyers coming across because there's some great talent, but they're thinking, hey, we're at huge risk because our lawyers are probably out having the same discussions. And I did suggest, funnily enough, what you kind of just mentioned, which was like a prisoner swap. You know, why don't <laughs> you just go make a deal amongst the law firms? You have these four, we'll take these four. So, so that bit, I think, is a little bit of just switching for something different. And I think the New York Times, I know you've coined a lot of phrases here. They also had an article where they called it the quitagion, where, you know, we're all influenced by other people. And if you look around your team and a third or a fourth have left, you think, well, what's the matter with me? Why am I not leaving? You know, they know something I don't know, so maybe I should leave, which I think is not a great reason to leave. And I talk a lot in the book about things you can do around job crafting or working with your current employer to make your job into what you want, because there is a, a cost to leaving. I mean, there's, there's stress, there's having to prove yourself in a new environment. If you generally like the company you're in and the job you're doing, but you just want to change, I think there are better ways to get that than leaving. Yeah. And I also think yeah. it's holding upon the firms to point that out to employees they want to keep because otherwise they are going to be subject to this. Yeah. I think longer term, there is something maybe about having a slightly different approach to work. There's a business solver survey that says 90% of Gen Z employees, and this is or Gen Z here, sorry, are much more likely to stay with an empathetic employer, which is mm -hmm. not something that older people care that much about. I've recently spoken to a young person here in Sydney who is very happy in their job, was offered a promotion and twice as much money to go to New York and turned it down, saying that they really prefer the lifestyle in Sydney. And that is, I think, more common now and it was maybe less common when I was entering the workforce or when people were entering in the 80s and 90s to say, no, thank you. I am putting my lifestyle ahead of my promotion or my pay. So I think maybe people are making different decisions than they would have and thinking more about how do they get what they want out of life and their career. I don't think there's a balance. I don't like that term, but I do think I wrote a lot about nurturing your career as if you're in a relationship with it, the way you might be with a partner or a spouse. And I think people are trying to think about that more. How do they make both things work for them? Absolutely. And look, and in this sort of, you know, plethora of studies out there, I think they are quite generational too. You just touched on Gen Z. So generally that's people born after 1995, which makes me feel very old, I have to say. Me um, too. <laughs> who make up a quarter of our workforce now. And I think some of them, you know, they, they love, they, they've done some studies and so oh, they've seen the great benefits package or their values match or whatever in the, in the job and the interview process. And then there's this kind of disillusionment when they get in, when they realise, you know what, it's still a job, it's still a business, you're still there to make money for those people. And the coffee might be just as bad in one place or another. So some of it sounds like a little bit of what we all go through in our early careers of just finding ourselves and finding the places that, you know, have some alignment. But I suppose in my generation, and I'm, I'm Gen X, I 
always thought, even in my own business, 40% of stuff I love, 40% of stuff that I kind of hate, and 20% is kind of bearable, you know, the admin and things like that. So asking for that sort of utopia sounds to me like people are setting themselves up for a bit of disappointment perhaps as well. Well, I I do think there's a bit of that. Um, Somehow over the last few decades, there's been a mounting expectation that, you know, you work for a company that espouses your values. You know, we're all looking for mission-driven companies. And then where you can exercise or fulfill your passions at work. And I think for some people that happens. But I do, you know, in the book, I quote Kim Scott, who's someone I know from Google, who wrote a great book called Radical Candor. If you oh, yeah, that's a fantastic feedback. book. Yeah, yeah. And she's got a quota. I don't have it in front of me, but it's basically, you know, expecting your work to fulfill your passion is a pretty high bar and it's not going to happen for most people. And again, that takes me back to treating your career as if you're in a relationship with it, because you're going to be with it for 30, 40, 50, 60 years as we all live longer and want to, you know, often want to have things to do. The idea of retirement kind of sounds fun, but people who like to be busy, they might not want to do. Well, not when it's a third of your life, I think, these days, right? You know, that's a long time. So so expecting that the work will fulfill your passion all the time, I'm not sure that's realistic. And maybe you're right. Maybe that's part of what people are finding out, that work is, I, I do think work can be fun. And I spent a lot of time talking about how to make work enjoyable. And I don't think people, like, don't quit your day job doesn't mean stay in a job that's awful. I think you should be able to mostly like your job most days. I don't know if it's quite the percentage breakdown you shared, but I agree. You know, there's just bits you're not going to like, days that are going to be hard or weeks or months, but generally mostly like your job. But it might be that some people are coming to the realization, hey, it's a job. That's why they pay me. Like, I <laughs> That's probably right. Get you get a good paycheck. Hopefully it's quite a nice place to work. And, you know, whether it's a small or large business, you get on with the people. But at the end of the day, it is still it's still work. It's not as fun as probably, you know, going to the Bahamas for a holiday and it's probably not meant to be. Right, because they wouldn't probably pay us to go to the Bahamas for holidays. What a shame. <laughs> I know. I am looking for that job. If you find it, could you let me know? Absolutely. Look, as a self-employed business owner myself, a, a big part of me has wondered perhaps some of the staff that got employed, but say they stay in their same business and they're now looking to leave or have just recently left, but it was pre-March 2020 when the world imploded. You know, they were hired to go to the office five days a week, maybe one day work from home. That was kind of quite common maybe part-time depending on what their their life stage might have been. They might have been able to accommodate a degree of flexibility because tech was sort of still around. We weren't so Zoom, used to Zoom, but we were kind of okay with video calls and, you know, being able to check into the office remotely. Surely people kind of couldn't expect that just because there's been a pandemic and you can work from home that some companies are going to just let you keep doing that. You can't just pop the Zoom camera off, work in your tracksuit, you know, kind of check in and be there, do work when you feel like it. Because at the end of the day, you're in a team. Most organisations require you to work as part of a team. I'm just wondering what the pushback reality is, you know, when people don't want to come back, when really there's not as much of a health risk anymore. That can't be the excuse, if you like. That's interesting. I think that, so what I see is it certainly depends on the career and the business. Obviously, people in healthcare or, you know, elder care, they've got to be somewhere physically, and they have been during the entire pandemic. 
Exactly. Or if you work in, uh, my husband works at Samsung and his team work in a warehouse. They cannot do that remotely. They need humans there. Right. There's a physical, at least until, at least until we have more ro- robots, they, there are people, people there, right? And people there. There are other jobs like coding in tech firms where maybe they never needed to come to the office, to be honest, if it's very clear what output they need. Mm-hmm. So to me, it seems like, you know, different individuals have different needs and Part of those are wrapped up in their careers and they may choose a career where they don't have to come in. I do think in the medium, near to medium term, we are going to see much more flexibility, much more work from home or work from somewhere else because it's possible for some employers and I think employees are going to be asking for it. I don't think it's just about, I want to be in my pajamas and not do any work. I think it's- I know. I'm hoping it's not like that. And I do sound a little bit sarcastic when I say that, but I've literally spoken to people like, oh, we're trying to get people back to the office, they won't come. And it's like, what do you mean they won't come? Isn't there some sort of, isn't it in their contract if they're a full-time employee that they need to come to the office? And if you, they haven't negotiated that, you can't just not come, right? Like maybe this is not, maybe that's not the workplace for you is what I'm thinking, which probably leads to the great resignation. If you really hate it that much, you know. Well, that that might be the case that employers who are forcing return, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out because, there is this, I've seen in a number of kinds of firms where there's more of apprenticeship, like the law firm I was referring to before, for the more senior people, say the partners, they're quite happy to be home because they know what they're doing and it gives them more flexibility. They don't need to be in the office. For the younger people where it's a little bit apprenticeship in the sense that they like to be at the last minute called into a meeting to see how it operates or maybe just pass somebody in the hallway that they wouldn't be brave enough to ask for a call, but they would just see and say, oh, you know, can you let me know if I'm doing the right thing here? That whole part is missing for them. And so they tend to want to come back into the office. So there, in some of these firms, there's a bit of a dichotomy that the managers have to help bridge because the more senior people don't need to be in the office and would prefer not to do the commute and the more junior people actually need it. So I think there's going to be a big challenge in those firms. And interestingly, I saw somebody from Canva last night who told me, so, you know, Canva made a big announcement, or at least I read one saying that you only need to be in the office eight days a year going forward. I think at last year said one day a year, you know, another big company that's, right. you know, it's incredible. But the guy from Canva told me, you know, the office is open here. I think it's in Surrey Hills in Sydney and it's buzzing. He said, it's fantastic. All these people want to come in. So people want to be back. You know, I think their employers are trying to create flexibility on both sides and we'll have to experiment still. I think we're still in a bit of an experiment. You know, what do people want to do and will they get used to coming back in or will they find they even really want to be in to be with their teams part of the time? Absolutely. And I think as someone who's worked at home on and off for, for probably 13 years now, since I had my first child, it's not that great working at home all day, every day. I, I just, and I know some jobs don't, even if you're like a coder or you can just not seeing people and just being in your house, no matter how nice your house is. And I've left Sydney and I've done the tree change thing. It still is boring after a while and it limits my creativity. And I get so much out of when I go into the city for a day and have meetings face to face. So I think sometimes we've overshot thinking that's the utopia and I, I'm wondering if people you know have kind of put that on a pedestal because maybe it's the first time they've ever done it was during lockdown and and maybe long term they will realize that I mean how do you progress your career how do you network are you just going to do LinkedIn I mean that's all those things that I think I think might matter for people as their careers kind of go into different paths you probably won't be with the same company for you know decades on end you need to think about what's next Well, it's interesting. Pre-pandemic, some time ago, there was a study where they used C-trip in China 
and allowed work from home. And one problem they found was this work from home worked well because it was customer service, but the people who didn't come in were not getting promoted at anywhere near the same rate. So there was a visibility issue. And so companies, if they want to be able to make this work, are going to have to make sure that they don't somehow slight the people who don't come in because again, those people will then leave. Absolutely. So how can you build a culture in a company or an entity that perhaps attracts and retains the best and brightest talent, which I guess is the utopia for most organizations during this great resignation period? I often think of people I know, and it's happened in my own business, where you've onboarded someone that you've actually never met because we've Mm -hmm. been in lockdowns on and off. And I don't know how satisfying that is for them or for me as we move forward. Yeah. So I think that I could name probably five things quickly for building a culture to keep people. There are many more. And within these, there are lots of little tactics. I do think retention is the new black. I mean, whether or not we still have the great resignation, I do think there's a bit of a war for talent right now. From the boards I'm on, we have lots of empty seats, basically, in in companies, both in Singapore and in Australia. And so, and it's partly, I think, because because borders have been closed and there's less freedom of movement. So maybe it will get better, but I do think there's a war for talent and retention. You know, for any company, retaining good people is far more valuable than hiring new ones. You know, it costs you less, there's less friction. So I think one is there is going to need to be more flexibility. We've talked about that already. And with that, you know, the companies need to help people set boundaries because one of the things that's happened with work from home is that it seems to feel like people can work 24-7 and they're actually getting more burnout. And so... I've thought that I think that happened during lockdown and then all the productivity studies show that you shouldn't be doing 11 hours a day at your desk and barely moving. I mean, that's not good for anyone. Right. So modeling that behavior, you know, you as a business owner, like we, you know, don't do email after this hour, or we don't do calls after this hour, obviously accommodating the fact that some firms are global and you have to make some changes. I think a second thing is making work fun and supportive and the challenge of doing that over Zoom, if it's you know, still work from home or remotely is, is harder. You know, you're not having in-person offsite. So I think people are going back to that. Can you play at the beginning of lockdown? I was on a team where we played, it sounds unethical, but I don't know, we got some online game where we robbed a bank in small teams and competed. (laughs) And, you know, whatever flights you boat. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it, it just got people to bond. We also did pub quizzes at lunch over Zoom, you know, just some fun, silly things that, try to a little bit accommodate or replace the things you would do in the hallway. I think being very careful with feedback, making sure that feedback is accurate and constructive, because it's important, if you go back to that McKinsey study, that people feel valued and invested in. And feedback is the one way they really understand that you are watching as a manager or company and you want to develop them. I mean, obviously it's good if you have some positive things to say, and then also Hopefully you have some things that are constructive to help them develop. Number four is job crafting, helping people if they like the firm and they want to change, you don't want them to leave, but there's nothing else right now. Um, There's a lot of literature right now on how to create the job you want within your firm. And then lastly, I think being really conscious of civility, there have been a number of things written. There's a study at a Portland State University in the U.S. that the level of rudeness during the pandemic has skyrocketed, I think, because of the burnout. Really? Is that because people were stressed and, and, and fearful? I'm just trying to think of the mindset. Yeah, I think um, it's stress, it. so burnout, so they're frustrated. Yeah. And then something about the distance 
right? Like yeah. you're kind of not even like you and I aren't quite together. We're not together. We're not physically together in the same room. Like if we're even Zooms, you, you know, you might be with a board and I've run board meetings, you know, via Zoom because we've had to and no one could travel and so forth and lots of, you know, boards have, you know, global or interstate members and you're right. I mean, there was things like people just decided to turn their camera off, go for a walk. I mean, I'm not against those things, but I'm like, would you do this if we we're in the office when we're trying to make really big decisions here? I just, I found some of that stuff quite jarring in some way. That's, I, I didn't know about that. I mean, I haven't seen that in a board meeting, but yes, I think it's exactly what you say. And people are doing things like writing curt emails that they wouldn't have before, just kind of not maybe following that 24 hour rule of if I'm frustrated, write it, but don't send it because yeah. I'm in a hurry because I'm exactly. so stressed. So I think companies really need to monitor that because again, you know, you want people to feel a sense of belonging, engaged employee, companies with engaged employees are 20% more profitable. You really, you want to still foster this sense of being part of a community and it's harder when you're not seeing people all the time, but I think it's doable. And I think those are a lot of the adjustments that companies are making. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at the flip side, I know that towards the end of last year, it's probably continued a bit into this year, there's been some rates of vacancies, resignations and wage growth all kind of slowed. I think the tipping point for this sort of great resignation perhaps was, you know, end of last year because, you know, people often want to start the new year with a new job and a new sense of purpose and all those sorts of things that come the 1st of January for some reason. It seems like there's been a bit of a rebound in some ways. And I read an article that was saying, look, if you weren't part of that great resignation trend, you may be too late. So what do you think business leaders need to do to kind of make sure that they're still attracting great people who want to work with their business, but maybe not overselling what that promise will look like. Going back to some of our earlier thoughts on, you know, people kind of getting into a job and realising it's kind of the same. I'm just sitting in a different part of the city in a different office or, you know, kind of speaking to a different leader. But at the end of the day, my job is pretty much the same. The demands are the same and the pay is almost the same. Well, although, you know, we could go back to that adage of change is as good as a holiday. Maybe for some people, that's all they need at this point. But I, I, I think the main thing is, you know, what I said before, companies are limited uh, in terms of promising too much, right, in terms of either pay or benefits, because they have to be honest about what they have. And obviously, what they can pay is limited by, uh, if they're public, what the share market will... I say the shareholders and all sorts of factors. And if you're, you know, in kind of different startup businesses, there's probably limits to what they literally can pay. Well, exactly. And in the growth businesses, I think one thing we've seen over the last few months with the stock market changes is that a lot of businesses that were considered growth businesses, which meant the stock market evaluated them primarily on how fast they were growing... They've now become EBITDA businesses and they're getting evaluated on their margins, which means they can't just decide to pay everybody 20% more. So yeah. uh, I, I really think if I go back to those, what I see companies focusing on to encourage people to join and to stay, I guess, you know, we haven't talked about this at all, but they- Retention. Retention. Yeah, absolutely. Retention. That's really important because it costs businesses loads of money when people- leave. That revolving door is not great for anybody. Right. So that's exactly why I think like retention is the new black and they need to really focus on these cultural elements that we just discussed, those five I listed, to make it attractive for people to be there. And I think as a something we haven't talked about and not the focus of this podcast, but you know, they need to have a good narrative about why you want to be in that company and what its focus is. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, the, the onus is on them, I guess, to kind of make that really clear and and be, but be transparent, I guess, about the reality of what it's like to work somewhere. Because at the end of the day, that's the thing. It's a job, you know, at the, you know, they've got to, they got to do what's best for the broader 
audience and maybe not so much an individualistic view of what makes it a great place to work. But, you know, as a company, it's all got, kind of got to come together. You've got to sing at the end of the day together, really, no matter what your job is in a business is my understanding anyhow. Yeah, I think the, you know, the job of the CEO is to lead it as a company together. Absolutely. Who've been your greatest mentors? Maybe think of one or two and why have they made such an impact in your life and your career? So interestingly, I would say I have not had that many mentors. I have been in jobs where the people who really helped me. So Hans Paul Berkner, who was the CEO of BCG and is now the chairman emeritus, Thomas Gergensen, they were both at BCG, as it happens, both of German origin, although Thomas is here in Australia, who really pushed me, pushed me to be my best in my career when I was a consultant. But I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is that I haven't really had a single mentor and possibly my my own fault for not really seeking one out. And what I think is really good for most people, and I've tried to describe it, is building more of a board of directors. You mentioned you're on a board, I'm on some boards. And what I see is that these diverse sets of thinking, groups of people around a table, help come to a better insight than a single person. And so what I'm really in favor of for most people, and I might have done this a little bit by default, I'm much more conscious of it now, is to find five or seven people who I can talk to about different parts of my life or career. Maybe part of it is about boards. Maybe part of it's about writing. Maybe part of it's about mentoring. Getting advice from them. They might not even know they're on my board and learning from them things I can do better and using that to kind of set direction and, and guide myself. And to me, that's a that's worked really well. In a particular company, you do, do need a sp- at least one sponsor or advocate. I think somebody who's going to really speak out for you, which is more than a mentor. But I'm pretty sold right now on people needing to build boards of directors. And I actually give a good example in the book about Susie Nicoletti, who used to run Twitter in Australia, New Zealand, is now running Yachtpo for Asia, and how she learned to advance her career building a board of directors. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. If we spoke again in a year, what would be the number one thing you would have hoped to have changed in your business or career and why? Well, for me, I wrote the book because I wanted to be able to scale my advice, you know, or my my insights, I guess is a better word, because uh, you learn that in tech, nothing's useful if it's not scalable. So in a very personal way, I'm hoping that don't quit your day job in a year we'd have a lot of responses that people said, hey, I read something in that book and that helped me better craft my job or decide that it was time to do something else or learn how to integrate my job and my life better. That's that's my hope, very, very personal, perhaps egotistical, but that's what I've been thinking about. No, that, that's what this is about. It's about your personal goals. So I think that would be awesome if that was, if that was to actually happen. Final takeaway message for us on the politics of the great resignation. Don't expect your job to be everything in your life. Nurture it the way you would a relationship. So build in some flexibility either with your employer or around your employer to do things you care about or that are meaningful to you. And it'll make, I think, the overall package of work and life better for you and you will rise and thrive. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the Politics of Everything today, Eliza. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if you do want to connect with Eliza, there will be some details on the show notes as always. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. 
If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.